it's not a human that learns, brother. It's the assemblage that learns, right? It's the assemblage that learns. And, and that means it's impossible to train the world or to transform it or to make it do exactly what we want it to do. See, activism could be just as much colonial, right? It, could, it, it works within that assemblage as well. Where money refuses to be profitable, where academics are not quite invested in scaling the professorial ladder, where things behave as if they were outside of themselves. Those are the opportunities, brother. Welcome to the Coconut Thinking Podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Freud, and we are in collaboration with Intrepid and News. Today's episode is a bit special for me. Our guest is Bayo Akamulafe. Now, I normally provide a short introduction to our guest, who they are, what they've done, their job, what company they work for, but I'm not going to do that this time. This episode with Bio came to me in a very coincidental way, in a very fortunate way, in a way that I didn't expect, which is absolutely wonderful. I didn't know how the conversation would go. I spoke with Bio in a past workshop, we exchanged emails, I knew his work, listened to his lectures, but I never really know where these podcasts go because the only two questions that are quote unquote scripted are the first two, who are you and what story do you want to tell and how do you define learning? Now, through a post-humanist lens, who are you and what story do you want to tell is, is meant to be quite open-ended. I generally feel that we know more about the person by how they interpret the question than necessarily by what they say. And Bio's response is post-humanist, going beyond the identity, post-identitarian. And the answer that he gives really shows the complexity of who we are, going beyond identity. Now, there might be a lot of... Uh, uh, heavy stuff, quote-unquote, but I really encourage you to go with it, specifically because Bio tells us in this story, in this podcast episode, that we need to sit with the pain, sit with the discomfort, and really feel it if we want to move beyond some of the structures, systems, paradigms that are responsive to such. I really do think that if we are able to sit with this, we'll get so much out of it. This is one of the most inspirational and encouraging episodes it's probably shifted my thinking in more directions at a time than many other experiences that I've had. So I'd like to thank Bio. As always, you can find our articles on www.coconut-thinking.design, articles on Interpreter News, that's www.interpreternews.com. But without further ado, I'll leave space for my conversation with Bio. Well, hello, Bio. Uh, it's a real pleasure to have you on our podcast. Now, I remember in one of the previous times that I heard you speak, you mentioned that you love to have people try to pronounce your name because you got to meet yourself every time, a whole new time. <laughs> so um, that makes me feel a little bit worried about trying to pronounce your name. Um, so I'm just going to cop out and just call you Bio. Um, however, that probably mispronounced that as well. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I will, uh, I will, I'll open up asking who are you and what story do you want to tell hello brother <laughs> let me start that way um but yes those are those are infinitely difficult questions to respond to surprisingly um the most basic ones um seem the most difficult to respond to and yes to mispronunciation right um i think we need to learn the art of holding these tensions. You know, and we're losing that art of nuance and complexity, being citizens, right? So I encourage mispronunciation to shake things up a bit. 
Um, who am I? Uh, I'm, oh, that, that is a difficult one. I, I don't know. Um, let me start, let me, let me start from something that might seem easy. I, my name is Bayo Akomalafe. I was uh, born in Nigeria in 1983 um, to a beautiful family. Um, we traveled a lot and um, I enjoyed my life as a kid in this family with three sisters. My father died when I was pretty young and then our, our life took a turn for the worse. It became very difficult, very depressing. Um, to eat, I would push things on the street push by, I don't mean drugs or anything. <laughs> I mean, I would push um, wheelbarrows filled with rented items from locality to locality to um, feed my family, to take care of my mother and my three sisters. And then I would cook chicken on the streets and, and stuff, and make barbecue. I went to the university, did extremely well, went back, became a professor, and then lost my way. Um, that's a, an, an abstract, summarized version of my ongoing histories. But if you were to ask me, who am I? I don't think that responds to it. What I feel invited to dance with is how, what am I indebted to? That's how I hear the question of who am I? Um, because the I is unstable. The I is not as fixed as a biography might presume it is. So I am held together, supported, loved, conditioned, um, limited, and also blessed, you know, by EJ, the most important person in the entire universe to me, who is my wife and partner and goddess, um, my children, Kea, Jaden Abayomi, and Alethea my mother, my sisters, my family, um, and not just that, my friends, the people that I do work with, um, that I think concepts like post-activism and making sanctuary and untold fugitivity and transraciality, um, people who gather to the things that I invite them to and study with me. Um, and then my ancestors, um, who are not relics of the past, but ongoing presences, you know, active ab absences um, in what it means to be me. Yeah, that's how I want to respond to that. What story do I want to tell? Or do you want to ask a, an intervening question and save me from this, this crash? That is my <laughs> response. <laughs> I, I don't. And I think that what you said um, about how it is difficult for some and easy for others to describe, depending on our relationship with 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 everything, with ourselves and with with everyone, and, and what ourselves is. So they're deliberately open these questions, and, and maybe the story you want to tell is no story at all. I don't know, but but it's I, I will leave it open <laughs> to to you. It's it's the, what's the is that how to pronounce it? Lasso lasso caves, you know the caves with the. Uh, European caves with the beautiful um, art on it. I think it would have been difficult for them to produce autobiographies because they were so infatuated with the animals around them and with life around them. There was no selfie. 
in those caves, which is interesting. I think I, I cultivate a lot of time thinking about entanglement and diffraction and no time for reflection. So it's there's a different optic geometry here. Um, so my story is one of many stories, I guess. It's the story of, yeah, no story and all stories. It's a story of silence. It's a story of... Um, um, travel is a story of um, tricksters boarding slave ships. It's a story of spirituality gone, you know, awry. Yeah. Um, let's see where the conversation takes us. Especially bringing up this idea of diffraction, uh, which is something um, that 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 is. That it's just quite a mind shift at even just thinking in terms of that. But but, but before we get into this, and, and also I want to keep a space for this idea of post-activism that you brought up. The question that we ask every guest just to get a shared understanding or actually realizing that we don't have a shared understanding is what is your definition of learning? Learning. Well, trained as a psychologist, um, the official dare I say, definitions of learning were quite anthropocentric. It was about what was going on in our brains and in our minds, if you consider those things apart, um, a change in behavior as a result of meeting an obstacle, a change in behavior. Um, but I am... Um, I think um, learning is, I think there's much more to learning than what might be perceived um, or what might be represented on our standard psychology textbooks. Um, I think if we refuse to situate our bodies as independent, separate and separable units of capitalist production, then Learning is more, much more diffuse and molecular and probably doesn't even rise to the level of experience or consciousness. You know, to, it doesn't need to be perceived in order to, um, for something to have changed or moved. So I, I think learning is deeply ecological for me. It's, it's um, that a change in the environment, a shift, um, uh, you know, a shift in assemblage, Deleuze would use the, the, the term assemblages, a shift in organization, a, a deterritorialization of how things are organized, right, is learning. Learning is when things fall apart. Learning is when things come together. Learning is the ongoing reiterativity of things, the becomingness of things, right? So that means I'm not limiting learning to what humans are doing. To human behavior, I'm I'm saying that the more than human world also learns, yeah. And when you bring up diffraction, it, it clearly brings up Kiran Barad and, and and her idea also of new materialism and and this idea of becomings of of non organic non non organic things also being part of these assemblages uh, and and decentering that human. So so this is this is fascinating. Would you would you like to tell us a little bit more about this concept of diffraction? It's it's um, 
the is you you might think of it as the unfortunate premise that the world starts and ends at human subjectivity that um there's a world outside and there is a world inside and this inside world is where the self resides right um there is no performative link or entanglement between us and the world outside because according to enlightenment thinking we are separate from the world that we inhabit um and that leads to a whole series of troubles to imagine ourselves delinked from the world that way now what if we start to organize ourselves in different ways and we see that we are actually connected and by connected i don't mean in some woo woo new agey way with respect to all our new age brothers and sisters and elders i don't mean it in some kind of um nondescript way i i i mean to say that we are deeply affected by the world we're supposedly changing as much as we believe we're changing it right we use the world as much as it uses us so we are somewhere in the middle instead of at the point of origin right um it's not behavior is not tethered to intention as much as it is tethered to microbial secretions in our guts the influences of furniture around us texture color weather weather patterns all of that create what we rudely call human behavior so a different optical relationship optics you know um, referring to seeing and how we see um emerges right um instead of reflection which is a way of knowing that seeks to represent the world outside and by a series of you know protocols apply soft representations to in a disciplined way to tell us the truth the final totalizing truth about the world instead of seeing the world that way as representational as outside of us demanding absolute precise representations we start to see that the world is not outside at all that how we approach it is part of how it becomes itself and how we become ourselves in that moment so representation is is not summarily dismissed that's also where we've been in the world but it is bracketed and something else emerges that is performative diffraction is how light bends around itself right how it spills into different um modules if you will um and how it interacts you know if one of the best ways i like to think about diffraction is the ripples on the surface of water right throw a stone and throw another stone or two stones and watch how the ripples cascade into each other creating new patterns right patterns that are unstable patterns that are constantly migrant and fugitive so in the same way our bodies our minds as if there were two, two different things our bodies our minds our socio materialities are constantly inter interacting with each other creating new possibilities that's one difference between diffraction which is performative and reflection which is representation and what i particularly liked about this idea of assemblages and diffraction is when when you when you put a light like you look at the pink floyd uh you know that's the easiest way to think about it, the 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 album cover light goes through a prism and it gets diffracted but what's really interesting is that as humans we only see 1% of that light spectrum and the assemblage that we create also such 
and infinitesimally small, way less than 1% of all of the affects within that assemblage of everything that then interacts. And, and, and that, that, is, that is really absolutely fascinating. And, and you bringing it up to the anthropocentric point of view is that we're so used to seeing it through the eyes of humans without appreciating the colors of all of other species. Yes, it is that we are, I like the idea, I like the physiology of the eye, right? It's it's that the eye is not just an instrument of vision. It's also an instrument of, of um, um, it, let me put it so that it's not just an instrument of representational closure, you know, it's also an instrument of blindness, right? It's, it, it, it shields and masks just as, probably just as much as it reveals. That's why we have a blind spot. The very means by which we see is, is um, affected by or interacts with our blindness. Um, so it, in the same way, we are, like you very eloquently said, we are caught up in organizations. You know, this is what the beauty of that term is, as assemblage or organization. We are networked, reticulated bodies. We are entanglements and concatenations. You are not Benjamin Freud, um, grandson of the great Sigmund Freud, sitting in a chair having a conversation with me. You are much more. You're a digital hybrid body right now, right? So your 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 systems are learning through you as much as you're learning through these systems. So there's something quite hubristic about thinking about learning as if it were something we do and the rest of the world is just dormant and mute, right? So, yeah. And bringing it back to this idea of something that we do in a school, in most school systems, the way we represent is, I am here and I impart knowledge on you. And there's this, there's this single, even if we say it's two directional and I learn it from you and we learn from each other, even some of the more progressive, and I use air quotes, educators would say, oh, but we're learning from each other. But but we're still the endpoints, rather than the middle. So so you mentioned all you know this idea. What is the middle? What what do you mean by that? That that there are no endpoints. There's the middle. It's the 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 endpoint being the individual is the fetish of modern civilization. What it wants to do is to take desire, right? It wants to take these um, untenable, wild migrant affects and pass it through the pipeline of the individual, which is the only way it understands agency, responsibility, morality, beauty, ethics, all of that. It needs the individual to be stabilized. And in stabilizing the individual, it needs identity to, to be stabilized. So what colonization does well, at least the speculative strand of modernization that we call um, individuality or individuation, not trying to steal Jungian phrases here, but the individual as a thing apart from everything else. What it does well is to stabilize the world and mobilize us, the individuals, right? Everything else is stabilized and we are mobilized. Um, so we can move, but the world cannot move. It has no historicity. It has no agency. How we meet it, because it's an object and we are perpetual subjects, how we meet it, it has to stay still and just be a passive recipient of our benevolent gaze, right? Um, so that's troubling. Um, but of course, the the invitation is to is to um see that we are we have and have never been um divorced from 
movements at large, we've never been not wild. We've never been not troubled. We've never been civilized. We've never been human, to use Bruno Latour's um, phrase. We've never been human. We've always been in the middle. So learning is, it's not a human that learns, brothers. It's the assemblage that learns, right? It's the assemblage that learns. And, and that means it's impossible to train the world or to transform it or to make it do exactly what we want it to do because the agency is diffracted through the assemblage, through the organization, not the atom within the organization. And that's why school struggles. <laughs> and, and this will really shake a lot of people who already feel that they are at the edge by providing students agency, which already is a problem because if we provide student agency, it means that we've taken it away. So already we're, we're at a starting point of, of oppression. Yet, maybe go uh, if you can go a little bit more into this idea of that we can't give agency, that people don't have agency, that that the assemblage, there it is a, an infinite amount of agencies, including from the non-material world. You, you, you touched on it, but but how can we get away from this idea of agency as means of changing the world, and then then they'll probably segue into this idea of post-activism. Um, if you, okay, when we say that agency is diffracted and a property, not even a property, right? I mean, it's not owned by the assemblage. Um, it is effectively entangled with the assemblage, right? Um, but but when we speak about agency today, we often think about it as a property of selves, right? Property meaning it is proper to a self, right? It is proper to a self to have agency. And of course, there are multiple racialized dimensions of selves. There are citizens and fugitives and vagabonds and black people, right? So it's, it's a whole lot of reasoning around that. But by thinking of agency as a property, we lose sight we elide the ways that agency spills away from citizen grasps, right? Or the individual, that there is a way in which we're embedded uniquely and, you know, particularly embedded within local contexts that already haunts the modern imagination and disturbs the idea that we have agency, that I could go through an educational process, uh, accrue to myself lots of degrees, and then at the end, I have agency, right? That's the myth that go through this process, then you have a job. That doesn't take into account, you know, <laughs> colonial assemblages, histories, ancestral hauntings, the movements of, of ecologies, changing sociopolitical contexts. Uh, by thinking of it as, an, as a property of the individual, we lose sight of what all the things that the world is doing through us and with us. And so where does that leave action? Mm, where does that leave action? Um, my concept of post-activism is a stretching of the idea of action, right? Um, to say that, you could say it this way. One way to put it is that it is not individuals that act per se. It is assemblages that act. Now, there's no acting that is not an acting with. There is no thinking that is not a thinking within. There is no being that's not a be becoming with, right? That's That disturbs the our hyper-individual consumerist notions of activism and agency and invites us to 
look around an act that I link with the link with the notion of prophecy. I think of prophecy as looking again, right? And revisiting the ordinary, right? The, the invitation of post-activism, which is, I hate to define it because it's a moving target, it's fugitive. But if I were to try to, in for the sake of our conversation, bring it in, I would think of it as a post-apocalyptic spirituality. That is a reframe of agency and action and an invitation to seek new allies in the midst of chaos and demise, right? It is a noticing that we are not the only ones in the room and that to think we are the only ones in the room is to risk repeating the same paradigms, the same toxic cyclicities that have put us in the situations we're in, right? So this is, and this is why I think of post-actorism along with fugitivity. Fugitivity historically was about losing one's way. There was no map involved. Hardly were there maps involved. It was about losing your body away from the plantation that seeks to claim you, right? And there was always an invitation to wade in the water, to fall away from the highway, to disguise oneself sometimes. So it's like a perversion of identity. It's like a perversion of agency. It's an invitation to hide. Where hiding is an epistemology. Hiding is the invitation to press one's body so close to the earth to a tree that will give you protective cover from the dogs that are on your heels, and then to become something else in the act of hiding, right? So post-activism's goal is not to find solutions per se to problem problems. It's not to guarantee the agent action. It's to invite the agent to die, right? That, that your actions are part, curiously and ironically, part of the assemblage of stability. And maybe in dying, where demise is literally, and this is the etym etymological root of demise, and I might just make it a verb, demising is handing over the property to something else, right? Giving property away. So post-activism is a trope of demise. It's hand over the property of agency away. You don't have it. You've never had it. So is it like melting in within the the assemblage? Is it being part? Is it is it just dissipating within it? Um, this, this idea of demise. It's it, it, stories are the best ways that I know to to bring forth the concept to life, um, and there are many. Uh, let me see if I could stick with one. There, I remember as an undergraduate in in Nigeria, I I would um, I had this fantasy that I was a superhero. I was a nerd, you know, through and through. And I I used to believe that I was a superhero by night. And I actually got into this university that was a Christian university and encouraged that kind of fantastical thinking that some of us could save the day. Some of us could become the next Nelson Mandela's of our generation. So I wanted to put myself in that way and do my best to present myself as the one that was gonna take the mantle of greatness. Right. So I had no friends, no uh, outings, not, none of that. Um, but at night, around 3 a.m. in the morning, I would wake up. It was a new university, so there were still some shoddy areas. I would take some my cutlass and, and I would cut the grass, you know, the weeds. And I'll just do it for free. 
telling myself I was earning the right to be great. And this is going to be part of my autobiography when I'm in the 60s, <laughs> when I'm in my 60s or something. Um, one day I came down and I was doing my business as usual. Everyone else was sleeping, no guards around. And I hit a stone, a giant stone in the middle of the field um, that was supposed to be cleared by workers in the morning. I hit a stone and I couldn't dislodge it from the ground. I was getting irritated by it. And so I tried to dig it out with my cutlass when it sprouted legs. <laughs> right? <laughs> Benjamin was like, what's happening here? The stone literally sprouted legs. But of course, it wasn't a stone. It was a giant frog. It was this amphibian monstrosity. And I don't do well with monstrosities. I don't do well with four-legged creatures. I'm sorry. Dogs are welcome. Cats, not so much. But amphibians, no, no, no. It just sprouted legs, so to speak, and just croaked this huge guttural thing, as if to say, you're disturbing me. And I threw everything in the air and I raced for my life. And I never did that hero, superhero business again. <laughs> but but the point of the story is to, is, is to say this, that there comes a time when the world kicks back. I think Karen Barat puts it that way, when the world kicks back, when our epistemic moves in trying to stabilize the world so that we can fix it in our gaze, so that we can save it. See, activism could be just as much colonial, right? It could, it, it works within that assemblage as well. Um, there comes a time when the world kicks back, when the world resists being put in a family wing, when the world refuses, like a frog saying, no, 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 I, re I refuse your fantastical projects, the superhero business here. In those moments, a different kind of move is required or called for. Something else wants to be done that is not just applying more force, putting in more money and all of that. And, and those questions are debilitating. This is what I call generative incapacitation. It's about lingering in the places of disability, in the places where we don't know, in the places where we don't know how to move forward, in the places where we're afraid, shadows. I think of it as the illness of modern civilization. Modern civilization does the work of trying to put a Band-Aid on these cracks, but those cracks are the places of generative new business and work and questions. So that's the invitation of post-activism then, that there is a, some kind of politics that I often think through Deleuze's politics of imperceptibility, which it distinguishes from a politics of recognition, right? I'm no longer speaking truth to power. I don't want to be seen by the empire. I'm going into the ground to do this work, right? That is post-activism. It leads to a cartography of failure, of loss, of not knowing. Where not knowing, brother, is not Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. Not knowing is an indeterminacy that sprouts when frogs suddenly refuse to be objects, right? So this is black geography. This is black aesthetics. When the world kicks back, when objects refuse to be objectified, what do you do? When a virus steals into our economy and upsets everything, certitude, confidence, you know, clarity, what do you do? That's the question of post-activism. And it invites a sitting with a studious inquiry within the cracks. I could say much more, but I'll just stop there for now. But, but I did hear you talk also, maybe linked to this, about a break about a need for a break. How is that related? And, and, and how big is the break? 
I mean, I guess a break is absolute. It's either broken or not. So uh, yes, I mean, we're not speaking of skill here. Worlds, I mean, you know, that is. I don't want to move into that. Um, lose my point here, but I might quickly say that um, there are worlds within worlds within worlds within worlds. There isn't a one world. There isn't. Um, I like the way my brother Marcus Gabriel puts it that the world doesn't exist, right? The world is not just this neat container of facts, you know, that we're trying to navigate towards. The world is a speculative, narratological, spiritual, socio-material concatenation of networks. So it isn't neat and tidy, right? So in that sense, worlds end and worlds begin, right? Um, there isn't a small crack or a big crack, or let's expand this crack. It's not a question of skill, right? The virus is vanishingly small, but it upset our world. It upset a particular world in process. Um, what I mean by break is using that story again, when an object refuses objectification. That's an event. It's when some kind of rhizomatic displacement happens. That is, our world in process meets an obstacle that seemingly is outside of that world in process. It's like the, what's that, Oumuamua? Is that transversal um, cosmic object that I think a couple, three, four years ago, zoomed into our galaxy and just zoomed out, forming this kind of parabola right? It, it never really landed, but it crossed through. And it was, it was, it was fodder for a lot of speculation. In fact, many books were written about it, claiming that that was an alien civilization, right? A transversal event is never completely available for analysis or scrutiny. Post-activism is the, is the convening of bodies around such events and an invitation to sit with it as if it were a classroom instead of something to just patch over. So that's how I think of a break, displacement. Um, it's displacement that allows new things to sprout. When we live in a world where every day there's some kind of catastrophe every day on the news, someday, every day there's some kind of flood, some kind of drought, some kind of fire, there is this idea of wanting to act, wanting to do something in this individualized collective. Well, you're suggesting, inviting, is that we don't give in to this compulsion to act. How do we resolve this tension in a world where we do nevertheless have to work within certain political structures? We still have to, as individuals, maybe we might be connected, entangled with other folks way across the world, but the system doesn't have the same, it has significant barriers of resistance because it doesn't necessarily feel the same way, see the same way, have the same structures, I guess. You could think of post-activism as a cautionary, prophetic um, invitation to look again at what we're acting with more than a prescription for how to act within circumstances, specificities that no concept can encompass. So I wouldn't even say that it's, it's a way for people not to act within their context or localities, right? I don't think any concept can speak to, can overgeneralize that way. Uh, it's, it's more a broad reading of 
agency and a broad reading within, you know, the socio-political dynamics of the Anthropos as a way of acting in the world. The Anthropos being this enlightenment project of making, flattening the world so that the man, the anthropological figure, can rise distinguished, right? Um, Post-activism directs his attention to that and says, um, there are breaks emerging in this statue, in this figure. How about we stay in those breaks instead of covering them up? So I, I'm not going to sit, sit here and say, um, if your daughter or your child falls into a cave of lions or something, you want to slow down in times of urgency. I'm, I'm not, it's not a prescription for how to act. It's more an invitation to notice that how we act is always more than just our intentions. I, among the things I, I find quite unfortunate, the words I find quite unfortunate, one is the supernatural, because of how we think of the natural as dead and mute, unless it's invested from on high with some kind of superintendence or something. The other one is intention. And even though it's youthful, a word, um, there's, there's a way in which we speak about it as if agency begins from some soul-like spiritual place that is within some kind of gilded interiority and it sprouts from intention and it becomes action and then it becomes noticeable through our physical movements. I think intention is a lot more festive and federational <laughs> and spread out and diasporic than we give it, uh, than we notice rather. So I again, um, the invitation is to touch Post-activism says, let's come in touch with the allies, with the multiple rhizomatic threads that are all around us. We can never do it summarily. There's no way to do it in a universal finalizing way. But maybe our actions could have a more robust, you could call it effective triangulation, brother, that we're acting from a richer place when we touch the threads of our acting, right? And that reframes urgency as a matter of alliance more than a matter of speed and so if i'm transported to a school if i'm transported into um, a, a classroom where one of our listeners might be into a, a system whatever it might be how do we work within the existing structures which are oppressive which which have their, their idea of colonialism and domination and, and and mechanization where do i even think about Where's my starting point? Even that isn't the right, necessarily the right word because it involves some kind of, I don't know, some kind of, uh, I mean, it's, it's certainly not linear, but, but where, where are the, the, the things that I can do tomorrow um, in order to, to really live within those breaks and yet still survive within the structures that are given to me? I'm going to use a word that might have a lot of religious connotations. It's grace, right? And I think of grace as a gift. You know, it's not something that is, it's grace is transversal. It breaks through the moral economy of an assemblage and allows something else that is not reducible to that assemblage to emerge, right? Think of it within the messianic traditions of Christianity. Something outside of the bubble of original sin penetrates that bubble and offers that bubble a new way to live, right? Um, 
I don't know that we really understand how deep institutionalization runs. That even some of us who claim that we're mavericks and that we are hot-headed and we're doing something anti-establishmentarian, we often are acting within the imperatives of institutions. Institutions stacked upon institutions, stacked upon institutions, stacked upon institutions. I often say that victory is a risk, right? That, that even in activist circles, even victory is a huge risk. And I know this not from some abstractual theoretical speculation. I know this from the histories of African nations and their struggles for independence through the 60s, the 1960s. Right? We won. We, effectively, we won. We pushed them away. We pushed our colonizers away. But winning <laughs> shaped, reshaped us. In winning, we put up our own flags. We adopted the parliamentarian system or the presidential system. We became like the ones that we supposedly defeated, is what I'm saying. Um, so institutionalization runs deep. And we are not always clear about where it begins and where it stops. So I, I'm going to speak with two cadences, with two tongues now, and say that it is impossible for us to summarily, unilaterally, on our own, remove ourselves from institutions, right? Because we don't even know what it means to remove ourselves, where we stop and where the institution begins. It's impossible to do that. But at the same time, institutions are not monolithic or totalizing. There's always, even in the midst of oppression and capture, there's always a glimpse, something that is not yet complete. There's always the trickster. There's the devil in the details, right? Because the world is processual and relational, nothing is completely closed, right? So it's within that space of non-closure and non-totalizing assemblages that I might be able to speak about grace, that there are moments when institutions behave unlike themselves. I've just gone through a month, many months of teaching about the unbusiness-like nature of business, right? I'm looking for the places where businesses behave unlike themselves, right? They don't, they're not seeking profit, where money refuses to be profitable, where academics are not quite invested in scaling the professorial ladder, where things behave as if they were outside of themselves. Those are the opportunities, brother. So grace is a, dis is a disability. Grace disables and incapacitates. But in, it's in that crack, that break, that opportunities for convening new moves can be seen. So to, to the person who has gone to school or who is within an institution, even merely asking the question, like you just asked, brother, that, so how do we work within systems? I see that as a break, at least for some time. It's, it's a line of flight and it's a possibility for new work. And the line of flight, of course, is a way to move the assemblage around. Yes. To deterritorialize it. Yes. Listen, um, I, I really want to thank you for your time. And, and I'm going to ask you now uh, a little bit the final question, which is the open question. What's on your mind? What are the, some of the things that you are um, involved in, looking forward to in the future, in the now? Um, uh, some of the things that, that are on your horizons. Um, well, I'm doing a lot of work and writing at the moment. I'm writing my third book, 
on these concepts, want, wanting to confuse people even more. Um, Post-activism and transraciality, reading racial injustice and all of these matters through a processual, performative, post-humanist lens. Uh, my some of the things that's some work I'm doing in writing and speaking and lecturing and teaching about. But I really am, if you speak about or you're inviting me to speak about what's what what feels like a dream, what 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 I want to see happen. It's a transnational carnivalesque festive Afro-inspired movement that is that is um a way of responding to climate chaos, a way of responding to the crises of this time. Um, I think responsivity, it, that is how we come to respond to a situation, is can very often be part of the furniture of the status quo. So that how we respond to the crisis be, is the crisis, right? So I'm 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 seeking other than the anxiety-inducing um, lack of chicken head running, helter-skelter uh, activism of this moment, I'm seeking something that is, I'm hoping to inspire or to co-convene something that is, that is um, post-humanist, that is animist, an emancipatory post-humanist politics that recognizes that the anxieties of this moment are not disentangled from the transatlantic slave trade, are not disentangled from the Anthropocene, are not in, disentangled from the nation state and its global order. So I'm hoping to see something that feels like what I call the Afrocene, which is not the African Anthropocene, that's a different concept, but is a different room for acting with the world, a different um, carnivalesque field of action. Fred Moten would just call it blackness. I call it the Afrocene, right? And uh, it's not uh, it's not an identity. It's not identitarian. It's an invitation. I want to frame this invitation and work with others to do so. And I'm already doing so with the Emergence Network, which I founded um, along with my wife and some friends. And and um, yes with some other institutes that are interested in these concepts that I'm framing. I'm going to ask you about the word carnivalesque. Yes. Why choose that word? Oh, yes. Um, Afro-diasporic spiritualities. is It's deeply embedded in the histories of loss and pain and suffering and stolen bodies, 11 million of which were domiciled in the Americas, I think 5 million in Brazil. What's inspiring about how they responded to their loss was they danced, right? And I don't mean that in a romanticizing, romantic way, um, as if to obscure the pain and the loss that they felt. But there was something about the spirituality of that, of those cracks that allowed them to respond in a way that was in a place-making ritual that felt like dance and new tastes and new food. Samba came out of such circumstances. Beautiful stories can be told about how the authorities would come and the drumming in the houses, hiding away from the officials would become 
this tradition, right? This so I borrow from that Afro-diasporic tradition of the carnival to express something that I feel needs to emerge planetarily today on a planetary scale. But I'm not looking for the global, this you know, even the local is already planetary. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much, brother. Thank you. This was the Coconut Thinking Podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Freud. Thank you for listening. We are in collaboration with Intrepid Ed News. As always, check out our website, www.coconut-thinking.design. Check out www.intrepidednews.com. We look forward to your comments. On Coconut Thinking, we've got a lot of resources, articles, videos, links to Wiser, and looking forward to any thoughts you may have or reach out to us. So we'd love to get your emails. Again, www.coconut-thinking.design and speak to you soon. Bye-bye.